Welcome to another episode of Undisciplined. Today I'm speaking to Professor Hans-Georg Müller, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Macau. Professor Müller has written two very well-received and very good books on Niklas Luhmann, which we will be discussing for a large part of the interview. Hans-Georg is also an expert on Chinese philosophy and has published prolifically on the topic. His latest book, Genuine Pretending on the Philosophy of the Zhuangzi, came out last year with Columbia Press. The intro music is by a friend of the show, Grada, and the track is called Deluge. And please visit his page with the link in the episode description. But without further ado, here's Professor Hans-Georg Müller. Professor Muller for taking time to speak with me and today we'll be talking about the work of Niklas Luhmann but also your own work developing further upon his theory and your own thoughts. Before we start I always ask my guests to please give me some biographical information on your own academic background, how you got interested in the work you're doing now. Do you mind Telling me a little bit about that. Uh, sure, I can do that. Um, I'm originally from Germany, as you can probably tell, both from my name and, and my accent. And um, I studied at the University of Bonn. And I studied Chinese studies, sinology, as it was called, and, and philosophy, as well as European ethnology. And uh, actually, I also studied for two years in China at the time, 1987 to 1989, uh, China was still pretty communist at the time. Uh, and um, so I'm not a, um, a proper Lumanian uh, because I didn't really, I never actually met uh, Niklas Luhmann and um, I never took any classes or anything uh, on him. Uh, so I'm basically self-taught uh, Lumanian, uh, which is also maybe why I'm do not consider myself uh, in a strict sense um, a Luhmann expert. Um, but I became interested in the theory in the 1980s and 90s when the theory was very much present at German universities and even beyond the university in the public sphere. Uh, Luhmann was writing articles uh, basically on a regular basis also for major newspapers and so forth. Uh, so he was a leading intellectual figure at the time, and this is how I became interested in his works. Uh, and he was very much uh, present as, as even as a public intellectual, I guess you can say. Uh, so I familiarized myself with his works and, 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 and read his stuff and also wanted um, to uh, pick him as a topic or his theory as a topic for my oral PhD examination at the University of Bonn. Uh, but then my professor at the time, Josef Simon, uh, didn't agree uh, because he said Luhmann uh, is still alive. He hasn't died yet. And uh, so we were only allowed to, to choose philosophers for the oral examination that, that were dead. Uh, because according to uh, the professors rationalizing it, um, the, the theory wasn't yet complete and there might still be changes or anything. So, uh, so he was never 
uh, not even part of my examination, not never part of my uh, proper academic education. Uh, however, um, the study of philosophy in Bonn was heavily focused on uh, German idealism, on Kant and uh, Hegel in particular, and also German philosophy afterwards, like uh, Nietzsche, and then leading into the uh, 20th century philosophy, uh, which also Josef Simon was part of, my teacher there, who came up with his own, what he called the philosophy of the sign, Philosophie des Zeichens. And that was quite similar to um, a kind of um, post-structuralist thinking, even though he wouldn't himself uh, given this label to himself, but it was about a um, a, a philosophy, a post-metaphysical philosophy of the sign. Uh, and that heavily influenced my, my uh, reading of, of Luhmann. Actually, Luhmann discusses um, the, this Josef Simon's works in his uh, book, uh, Das Recht der Gesellschaft, The Law of Society. So um, again, this is just to say, while uh, I wasn't officially trained as a Luhmannian, I'm familiar with the philosophical background that informed uh, much of um, Luhmann's background, at least in the area of philosophy. And it was also something that was uh, generally present uh, during my um, uh, academic uh, studies uh, already in, in Bonn. I'm just curious, how did you, did you reconcile or combine that with your interest in Chinese studies, or did you keep them in separate mental categories for yourself yeah this was large i kept this largely separate um and then eventually things um more and more overlapped uh, but that took a long time um probably the first overlap is in uh, the book I, I wrote about 10 years or so was published about 10 years ago the moral fool the subtitle is um in defense of amorality or a defense of amorality and um one aspect of Luhmann's work is that it is highly critical of, of moral discourse, of moral communication. And that's actually a parallel, a strong parallel. You find this in, in um, uh, early Chinese philosophy and in Taoism, which was my main area of research uh, in the field of Chinese philosophy. So um, I found eventually some forms of uh, compatibilities uh, on both sides. And... Um, um, my my present work um, uh, on what could be called a philosophy of identity is, I think, equally influenced by my studies on Taoist and Chinese philosophy, as well as my, my studies on, on Luhmann's theory. Um, but um, this was never really for the purpose of saying that whatever early Chinese philosophy was already some form of proto-Lumanianism or that Luhmann was at heart a Taoist. Um, that was never the case. Um, but I'm more interested in what I would call a post-comparative approach. So not merely saying, oh, uh, th what this person in the West says has already been said more or less in the same way by a person in China or anywhere else in the East uh, more than 2,000 years ago. I don't think that's really that much interesting, but I think it's interesting to tackle contemporary questions to be able uh, to make use of a wide variety of resources. And uh, I just, I guess, like anyone else, make use of the resources I'm, I'm familiar with. And I find both Luhmann's theory a very fruitful uh, theoretical tool case. And the same is true for, uh, for, for early Chinese philosophy. So I, I look at it 
in that way, not in a not in a strictly kind of comparative way, but as as useful resources to to think about interesting issues. Yes, and certainly Luman has left us with a I always say a very big toolbox for tackling a variety of issues. So this, as you know, is part of a, a small series I'm having on Niklas Luhmann, the first of the series. So I was wondering, would it be possible for Professor, for the listeners who don't know Luhmann, to give maybe a very short biographical sketch of him? Sure. Um, well, he was born in 1927 and died in 1998 and was major German social theorist uh, of the 20th century. Um, he became famous through his debate with Jürgen Habermas in the 1970s. They published a, a discussion uh, together. And um, then um, Luhmann was regarded during his lifetime, as I mentioned earlier, as, as one of the main living uh, thinkers uh, in Germany. And he came up with this, what he called himself a super theory of, of society that is uh, very much in the tradition of what you could call maybe systemic uh, German philosophy. This is like larger, greater uh, theoretical systems that um, address that or that offer a general theory, not only of society, but of basically the world. Uh, and Luhmann is in that tradition. Uh, so um, his, his social system theory is a grand theory that uh, in scope can be compared uh, and also in its conceptual rigor uh, can be compared with um, a traditional German systemic philosophy as you find it, as I mentioned, in Kant, Hegel or Marx for that matter. Um, and otherwise about his biography, it's not very exciting. He taught all his life at the University of Bielefeld um, and just um, published an immense amount of, of essay, essays and books. And he was just basically uh, writing or lecturing or doing other kinds of academic work uh, all the time and um, never really did anything uh, remarkable uh, outside of that. So yeah, as you said, the most interesting thing about him is certainly his academic output and his theory. And as you said, he was a uh, He's known for his super theory of society or of the world, which you mention Kant and Hegel and Marx. It, it seems to me this interest in creating grand or super theories is a very, somehow a very German tradition. Yeah, it's definitely not something that you find to that extent in the Anglo-American tradition where it's uh, much more about uh, tackling very specific uh, problems and um, yeah, and um, looking at, at, at issues in a more, well, not necessarily isolated way, but in a more specific way. Mm. Summarizing such a big theory is nearly impossible. But as I said, probably most of our listeners are not familiar with Luhmann. Is it possible for Professor to to give a very basic summary or introduction of what Luhmann's systems theory entails. 
Um, I just can give you a few pointers, maybe things that I find sure. very basic about the theory, and I think that are quite basic about the theory without uh, pretending to give a um, kind of survey at the same time. And he calls himself a radical constructivist and surely is a radical constructivist. So in that sense, even though he doesn't apply this specific label to himself, you could also call him as part of the uh, general social theory of social constructivism. But um, in, for him, what this means more uh, specifically is, I think, and I, I think that reading his works, this can be clearly shown, uh, he's very much in the in the tradition of, of Immanuel Kant and, and Kantian philosophy. Uh, and this kind of constructivism that we already find um, in Kant. Uh, so very simply put, uh, what Kant said, basically, we don't have access to the th things in themselves. Uh, what philosophy needs to do, and this was basically what his so-called Copernican turn, uh, rather than looking at the objects uh, out there in the world, what we have to find out is what are our means of perceiving these objects in the way we perceive them. So he looked basically, Kant looked at the way uh, our cognition is capable of constructing the world that we perceive, and then ultimately also constructing whatever morality and, and other things. And I think Luhmann is firmly rooted in, and Luhmann's theory is firmly rooted in, in that approach. Uh, of course, he's not a cognitive constructivist. He's not doing some form of epistemology. He's not um, analyzing reason or rational structures or intellectual structures, but he's analyzing social structures. Uh, so for him, constructivism means uh, basically an analysis not of the cognitive abilities per se that allow us to perceive objects, uh, but of the social capabilities, and for him these are communication capabilities, uh, through which we, uh, or th through which the world that we live in, the social world that we live in, um, is constructed. So um, that's, uh, that's, I think, is, is put very broadly. One very basic aspect of his theory, it's a radical constructivism, a social constructivism that looks at um, the structures of communication that allow the social world as we know it to exist. So uh, it's about the, the, the conditions of the possibility of, of social reality through communication structures. And then basically whatever we, we take seriously in society, some stuff like whatever laws or uh, justice or truth or economic value or even love, uh, can be analyzed on the basis of uh, the communication structures that give rise to these things or to these elements to become meaningful and important for us. So it's basically an analysis of the social structures, the communication structures that allow the social realities, such as those, as I just named, that allow them to, to rise and become meaningful. And that's the first aspect, I think, of the theory, this kind of radical social constructivism. Um, a second aspect that is directly related to it is, is he's a self-labeled uh, radical uh, anti-humanist. And to put this maybe less offensively, you could also say he's a radical 
uh, or his position is one of radical non-anthropocentrism. So for him, society, as I already implied, is not really constituted by individual human beings. These are not the building blocks of society. Uh, in fact, lots of aspects of human life, for instance, like our bodies, are not really part of society. Uh, they're in the environment of society, and without whatever uh, our bodies, of course, society couldn't exist, but they're not proper elements of society. So um, his approach to understanding society is a on the basis of the analysis of, of communication, not uh, on the basis of somehow assuming that uh, the social world, the social reality is constituted by a sum of individual uh, human beings. In this way, he looks at the basic, let's say, building blocks of a society as different communication systems, economy, politics, law, and so forth. And these have evolved over long periods of time. They've evolved over history. Uh, and uh, they constitute, let's say, the, the different social fields in which social life takes place and in, in uh, which provide meanings. Now, the idea, again, is these social realms, these social systems are not human inventions. They're not made by certain humans who somehow had the idea, okay, let's have politics or let's have laws or something. Uh, they evolved over time and um, a human social life takes place and makes sense in accordance with these uh, different uh, systems rather than the other way around that somehow um, humans come, come first and then construct society and construct social life. It's rather the other way around uh, that society emerges and then um, what we do, like our conversation right now, uh, makes sense on the basis of specific existing communicational structures, mm -hmm. uh, which we then uh, enact. So that's the second aspect, uh, radical constructivism, uh, radical non-anthropocentrism. And then to name a third one, uh, Luhmann was strongly influenced by uh, evolution theory and by some uh, biological uh, theorists like the Chilean, Chilean biologists uh, Maturana and Varela, with whom he cooperated. Um, so the the idea is also um, that society, just like we have a biological evolution, which uh, takes a long time, so there's also something like a, a social evolution, an evolution of social structures, and these are not created, just like you know uh, biological evolutionism uh, or evolution theory counters the theory that. Um, life was created by God. Uh, and in a similar way, um, a, th a theory of social evolution uh, assumes that society evolves and is not man-made or, or God-made. And uh, also in that sense, we are not in control of it. Just as we, we are not in control of, of biological evolution and cannot steer or direct um, the evolution of our bodies. In that sense, uh, also social evolution is not something that is that is being uh, controlled by some form of control organism. But it, it's and this is a key word. Then it's it's a it's a complex um, it's a complex form 
of uh, evolution which is not uh, under some form of, of central supervision. So that's also an, a very important aspect uh, that complements both the constructivism and the um, non-anthropocentrism elements of, of the theory. Great. So that's a lot to get into. But one thing that I would like to have your opinion on is that with time, Luhmann has been regarded and perhaps even discarded. He, he's painted as a very conservative thinker. But you, a few years ago, you wrote and published a book called The Radical Luhmann, where you argue the exact opposite, saying that Luhmann is in fact a radical thinker, not a conservative one. So in your opinion, why does this image of Luhmann as a conservative persist? And why is that wrong? And why should we regard him as a radical thinker? Um, well, I think that how the label emerged is, is rather um, easy to see because he was, as I mentioned earlier, he became famous through his debate with Habermas and Habermas was uh, seen as a leftist thinker. So if you were not agreeing with Habermas, uh, then you were easily labeled uh, somehow a conservative or rightist thinker uh, just because of this kind of binary opposition. Um, but that's not really the case. Um, because um, Luhmann was not really formulating in any way any, any normative position at all, uh, and also not in any narrow sense uh, any form of, of, of political theory. Um, the second directly related reason why he was labeled conservative is because he was not um, taking a normative approach, like we would say today, he was not a social justice warrior, right? I mean, Habermas mm -hmm. can be seen as a kind of predecessor of a social justice warrior type of, of scholarship or approach to social theory. And um, Luhmann was trying to be quite strictly non-normative. I would even say perhaps uh, simply non-judgmental. Uh, and um, uh, instead being trying to be descriptive uh, and um, this kind of lack of social normativity was then uh, interpreted, okay, so since he is not uh, telling us how to make the world a better place, he apparently wants it to stay the way it is and therefore he must be conservative. So this was the simplistic reasoning behind this label, which I think is, is not at all appropriate, um, but it's just an effect of a very, very narrow-minded bin binary uh, distinction. Um, now, why, why do I consider Luhmann actually a very radical thinker? Uh, again, this brings us back to Kant and Kant's notion of critique. To be critical in a theoretical sense uh, does not mean at all just to say, oh, this is bad and this is good or this is right and this is wrong. Uh, critical in the Kantian tradition actually means, quite literally, to analyze the conditions of the possibility of something. Why are people saying what they are saying? Why, we, why do we assume and perhaps must assume that this is true and this is not true? So that's a, that's, that's a critical analysis which Kant distinguishes explicitly from a dogmatic attitude. And the dogmatic attitude is, is basically uh, very similar to the normative attitude, that the dogmatic attitude just accepts certain things as right and other things as wrong, 
and then develops a dogmatic discourse based on what is assumed to be an undisputable right or an undisputable truth. In this way, I think uh, Luhmann is, is much more critical and much more radical than, for instance, Habermas or related thinkers, uh, because there is a certain tendency, I think, both in Habermas and then especially in what could be called maybe popular uh, positions on the political left uh, that are uh, just um, quite obviously uh, some forms of moral dogmatism that precisely because they are so dogmatic uh, lack um, uh, a critical engagement in the sense of an attempt to analyze the conditions of the possibility, for instance, of taking something to be right or true uh, or false or wrong. So uh, this very non-normative approach, this non-judgmental, this non-dogmatic approach goes along with a radical critique um, that questions normative suppositions. So in this sense, you could even say that Luhmann is is at heart a Socratic thinker, uh, someone who uh, questions uh, the validity of generally unquestioned uh, concepts and uh, values. So in this sense, I think he's he's much more radical and much more critical uh, than a lot of the thinkers that are commonly labeled as critical thinkers or critical theorists to reconnect it with Habermas. Because I think actually critical theory, not always, uh, but often in its application, uh, tends to be dogmatic in the Kantian sense rather than critical. That's interesting to me. I agree with you. But if you say that, you know, critique is what creates the conditions of possibility for something now, a typical or important theme in in Luhmann's work or in his theory is the idea of functional differentiation, meaning, as we said earlier, that we have a political system and a legal system and an economic system and that these operate autonomously from one another. So I was wondering these are uh, conditions of possibility for looking at society in that way. Right. Do you think that this is perhaps a very European way of looking at society? And Luan's work is often as wide as his influences are. He is very much steeped in the European tradition still. And do you think this idea of society being differentiated functionally into different social systems, is that abstract? enough of a description that you think it's applicable to world society as Luhmann claims? Or do you think there's a bit of a Eurocentrism at work here? For example, you're you're an expert on Chinese studies. Would you say that Luhmann's description applies equally to, for example, China? Um, Well, the short answer is no. Uh, I don't really think so. And I don't think that the the theory lacks in uh, abstraction. It actually couldn't really be uh, much more abstract than it already is, even though that also could be qualified. But anyways, um, so uh, I don't think that's that's the the problem. But Let's go back to this term that you brought up at the beginning of your question when you were bringing up this crucial term, functional differentiation, which we didn't really explain. It's indeed uh, one of the core concepts of Luhmann, and for him it's one of the basic 
aspects of modern society, uh, according to him, uh, what happened is uh, he describes the transition of pre-modernity to, to modernity as a transition from what he calls stratified differentiation to functional differentiation. And according to him, this happened in Europe uh, between the 16th and 18th century. Uh, and afterwards, we have a world society uh, which is all based on functional differentiation. Now, what does this mean? Again, I'm, I'm putting it very simply here. Uh, stratified differentiation basically means we have uh, societies, is the basic dividing lines in, in society, the basic structures of society are different social strata, or as a Marxist would say, different social classes. So we have um, a certain social hierarchy, and then uh, people are, and, and, their, and their lives, their social lives are basically structured or, or, or um, modeled according to their position in, in, in the social stratum, right? You're born into a certain stratum, uh, you're born into a certain class, and then your whole life is, uh, is kind of determined by, this, by, the, by, the, by these structures. And he said, uh, Luhmann says, this changes uh, when we transition towards modernity. Although these strata still exist, they never cease to exist. What happens is that these, these social systems that you uh, mentioned, uh, they become now uh, the basic structure of society. So it doesn't really, it, it's not that important um, which class, let's say, you belong to. Um, you still have to go to university and the academic system. Uh, if you uh, do something wrong, then, then uh, you have to deal with the legal system. Uh, you have to make money in the, in, in the econo economic system. Uh, you might take part in the elections like everyone else. So it's really these different social systems that now uh, are uh, the basic social setup uh, and that are the basic structure of social life. And that is for Luhmann the transition from, from pre-modernity to, to modernity. And again, this, uh, according to him, took place in the, between the 16th and 18th century. Then eventually, uh, for him, the idea was, oh, now this is now worldwide the case. And um, this is now, um, we have a global society, we have a world society that is characterized by, by this kind of functional differentiation. And um, he said himself, right, this occurred in Europe, but then it eventually became a global phenomenon. And um, I'm just not sure that it is. Um, and I don't think actually Luhmann himself in the end um, was really uh, that sure about it. Uh, towards um, the end of his life, uh, he wrote some quite interesting shorter essays, two, just to name two of them. One is called Beyond Barbarism, the other one... Um, world society or globalization, where he actually says, hmm, and this is written like in the mid-1990s, uh, maybe in the 21st century, the major distinction that we will we have to deal with is inclusion versus exclusion. And what he meant by this was inclusion into social systems versus exclusion into social systems. And what he meant concretely by this was, you can see this in these essays uh, that I just mentioned and others, mm -hmm. um, he seemed to have quite shocked by his experiences when he was traveling to Brazil. Uh, he, he was uh, rather, and still is quite uh, well known in Brazil. And there are quite a few Brazilian sociologists in particular who've studied his work. So he had contacts there, he traveled there, and he saw uh, the poverty there. And he saw uh, the favelas, uh, he visited even the, the, the favelas there. So this, this, 
endemic widespread poverty and his reflection and his initial reflection was oh my theory doesn't really apply to these people apparently uh, they're not really mm-hmm. taking part in, in 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 normal social life as they should be right so mm-hmm. uh, whatever he said that their their so their life is reduced is seems to be reduced to mere bodily existence something like this not in exact these words right so they have no job therefore they don't get a passport therefore they're not really subject to the legal system uh, they don't have bank accounts and like this so it seems like they are excluded not only from one system but basically from from most of the social systems and then he was thinking hmm uh, maybe in the 21st century um, what we will see is like a distinction between those who are included and who um, you know function within these different function systems and those who are not but I think his analysis was simply wrong <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the people in the favelas are actually not really excluded uh, they have money they do vote uh, i think they voted uh, probably bolsonaro that he won the election was largely also due to their vote uh, they um, they're certainly very religious often many of them you know they're in the media uh, uh, they all have uh, uh, smartphones and are on social media and so forth. So it's it's simply not true. Uh, probably many of them also have passports and probably many of them are also faced with a legal system uh, or whatever they're sent to jail and stuff like this. And of course, they also have money and spend money, though it might be money that is not considered legitimate because it might come whatever from drug dealing or other things. So um, I think that's uh, simply not true that poor people in the third world uh, are excluded. But um, we're dealing nevertheless with very, what could be called a very messy form of uh, functional differentiation. In once we leave uh, the clean and neat uh, German society or Anglo-American society, even though in America it's, it's already much less clean and neat than in Germany, and probably in Germany it will become less clean and neat in the future as well. So there is still, to put it in Marxist terms, simple Marxist terms, the, the, the stratified, the, the, the specter or the, the, uh, the past of a stratified society that Luhmann thought uh, we now have uh, left behind, uh, that's still very tangible in, in lots of parts of the world. And there are class differences. There is a, a huge poverty problem. Uh, and um, uh, there is uh, the world just doesn't function everywhere the way it functions uh, or it used to function in, in Western Germany uh, in the 1960s or 1970s. So, um, yeah, I do think it's, it's, uh, uh, it's problematic. Uh, or the, the, let me put it like this. The theory is based on an analysis of the reality in Germany. And as I said, even though Luhmann studied in the United States for a year or so with Kalka Parsons um, in the 1950s, still uh, his horizon uh, of experience of social reality was rather limited. And I don't think that this necessarily has a bad, that, that doesn't make his concepts invalid. I think the, the, the concepts are still very useful, but they are not, um, they are too ideal-typish would be the German word. They are mm-hmm. ideal types uh, that not necessarily are applicable to, uh, to the situation uh, all over the world in the same way. The reality is, is, is more complex.
And just to give you just two examples to complete this, um, t- for instance, to define um, the political system as he does on the basis of the distinction between government and opposition is problematic uh, once you go- leave liberal Western democracy style politics. And also the description of the religious system as based on the code imminent, uh, transcendent, is also very Judeo-Christian centered and doesn't really apply to, for instance, East Asian religions, at least not in, in the same extent, and doesn't really make much sense there. So there, there is a very strong Eurocentric uh, limitation to certain aspects of his own application of uh, of the concepts. But again, that doesn't necessarily devaluate the concepts uh, as such. Yes, thank you. You mentioned that uh, Luhmann adapted his theory or, or, or projected that the question for our century will be the one of inclusion and exclusion. Right. And we spoke about this uh, functional differentiation of society. But right. I'm just wondering, in a country like China, mm. would we say that the majority or that many people in China are excluded from the social system? Or because I would, my instinct would tell me that a lot of people in China are almost hyper included into right. the social system. Well, uh, that's an interesting question. And uh, of course, people in China are just as included as most other places of the world. But of course, again, like uh, the, the Luhmann's definition of the political system as based on government opposition it doesn't really fit the Chinese case at all. Sure. Nevertheless, we have a very, I think, well-functioning political system that is actually very powerful. The Chinese Communist Party is by far the largest party of the world. It has nearly 100 million members. So what the... Talking to Chinese colleagues, Luhmann is actually, uh, he's just being translated and, and there is a, there is a maybe not large, but a significant interest in Luhmann's theory in China. And uh, usually what uh, my colleagues here say is similar to what I felt. Functional differentiation in China is not really the same uh, as it is in Europe. And uh, this has, for instance, or this has something to do with the role uh, the political system plays and works uh, in this uh, society. Um, And of course, in the West, from a Western perspective, uh, this is seen uh, as something uh, hugely negative, uh, which from a Chinese perspective, it not necessarily is. Um, After all, uh, I mean, Chinese has transitioned very fast and very efficiently uh, into its own modernity, which now becomes, uh, is regarded, let's say, as a challenge for when we're entering or already in so-called new Cold War between the United States and China. Or one main reason for this is because you could say China represents an alternative form of modernity that challenges certain assumptions of what it means to be modern in general. And uh, yeah, and so I think China is, is a very fascinating case that managed to transition, so to speak, on its own terms uh, to uh, modernity. And um, that just doesn't work exactly uh, the way as, as maybe um, the European or the North American model 
uh, thought, you know, this is how it has to go. And definitely the Chinese people are, uh, they're not just, you know, um, brainwashed uh, pawns without agency. Uh, there is a very strong, uh, lively political discourse going on in China, uh, both within and, and beyond the party that functions uh, along its own uh, dynamics. And that is, is very different from uh, the model of the, of the liberal democracy that, that Luhmann's theory was based upon. But it's not the case that because it's not based on this, it is not capable of uh, developing highly modern features. That brings me to the question of identity also in modernity. So, of course, I mean, as we can see that identity is shaped and can vary geographically from country to country or continent to continent. But increasingly today, our identities are shaped by technology. For example, on the internet, which is also enabling what Luhmann called second order observations of the world. So on the internet in particular, we don't always see the world directly, but as it's being observed or as it's being represented, we observe observers. So in this context, your recent work has talked about profile-based identity or the term that you coined for it, profilicity, which is replacing the authenticity or internal inner-based identity. So do you mind explaining this concept a little bit more and this term that you coined, profilicity? Yeah, thanks for allowing me to talk about this. Uh, I want to connect this directly to Luhmann and, and build it on uh, Luhmann's works. So Luhmann has these two basic characteristics of modernity or modern society. The one is the one we already discussed, which is usually the one that is stressed most, functional differentiation, the transition of a stratified society towards a functionally differentiated society. But then particularly in his later works, he brings in this closely related second concept, which is the concept of second order observation. And he thinks second order observation is also uh, perhaps an equally important characteristic of modern society. Uh, now, what does that mean? Uh, the, the concept is actually rather simple. Uh, you don't look at something directly, it would be first order observation, uh, but you look at, at how something is being observed by an observer. That's second order observation. You, you observe something via someone who observes it. And um, he says, this is basically what all function systems do in modernity. And I think this characteristic is uh, actually perhaps even more important and more globally, because we talked about the problems with functional differentiation, for instance, with respect to China, uh, more globally applicable than the first one, is less problematic than functional differentiation as a characteristic of modernity. Uh, I, uh, and again, according to him, second order observation always existed, but it wasn't like a primary mode of observation. Let me explain. That's not Luhmann, but I think it's a simple example. It doesn't come directly from his works. Let me explain this, this transition. I think one, one um, good example to explain this transition is um, the emergence of the notion of the, of the picturesque. You, do you know this notion of the picturesque? Something is picturesque? Just that something is beautiful? Yeah. Uh, it's an aesthetic term. You use it also in, in German. You say, oh, it's very, it's pittoresque. 
It means basically something looks like a picture. It was an aesthetic category that became popular in, in the in the late 18th century. Uh, so people would travel around. The, the, traveling became already popular among the elite at that time, whatever, they would travel to Italy and so forth. And they would look at the scenery, right? And then they would say, oh, this is so beautiful. It just looks like a painting, right? And that's picturesque. It looks like a picture, okay? Um, and that became a major aesthetic category at the time. So you would look uh, at things, at, at, at sceneries, at a landscape or at a person as well, let's say, as a, at, a, at a beautiful person and say, oh, why is uh, she or he uh, beautiful? Because she's so picturesque. She looks like in a painting, right? And that would be like an aesthetic excellence. And what happened there is basically a switch from first order observation to second order observation. Like, so to speak, traditionally, you would look at a painting of a person, let's say, and then you would say, oh, the painting is really good because it just looks like her. So you would have a first order observation. You look at this person and then you look at the painting and then you measure the quality of the painting. You say it's a really good painting because it looks like her. It, it fits my first order observation. Uh, or you would say it's a bad painting because it doesn't look like her. So the first order observation would be the measurement by which you judge the quality of the painting. But then with the emergence of the picturesque, we have a total reversal of this logic. We look at someone and find her good looking because she looks like people in paintings look. Or we look at the scenery because, uh, and find it beautiful because it looks like a scenery that is depicted on a painting that we've seen somewhere. So that is this switch from first-order observation to second-order observation. We measure the what we see first-order, the landscape that's right in front of our eyes, by measuring it with second-order observation by looking at a landscape as it has been observed by the painter who painted mm. the landscape. And um, that is, Luhmann says, all of society in modernity has switched to second-order observation. And I... What he, and I think what he means is exactly what I just described. Look at, the, for instance, the economy. You value whatever uh, house you buy or um, you value the financial products you invest in on the basis of mm. their market value. What's the, right? It doesn't matter like what material the house is built of or, you know, it's the material value is not the value, the market value, how it is observed by the relevant observers, which are uh, the, you know, the players on the market. So the, like in academics, it's the same thing, right? You look at a paper and see if, if it's relevant, depending on the journal or the publisher where it has been published. Or like what Walter Benjamin called an art exhibition value, right? The value of a, of a painting or of a work of art is, is based on where it is shown. Hmm. So this has basically taken place in all social systems, in the economy, in the economy, also in politics. You look at someone, and this is what the politicians are concerned with, uh, what do the polls say about this? Right? What what does what is the, this politician's profile in uh, public opinion? 
you don't really if you you see this in the news right away i just saw it uh, like they made an experiment and they said um these are the political measures uh, suggested by joe biden right and then liberals would say yeah that's all great but in fact they were actually political measures suggested by trump so what the point is not really is it trump or is not the political measure you see it in terms of uh, of a certain in in terms of a certain profile in terms of how it is being observed by others right and so you 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 judge the political measure in terms of the profile of the politician whom you associate mm-hmm. with the political measure and uh, so according to uh, to Luhmann, we have this kind of transition from first order to second order observation that 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 took place um, between six and, and that that represents the transition to modernity and i think that's that's a, that's a super correct point and uh, i think now and that's a, that, so that's what i call profilicity that is the image that is the image of something not under conditions of first order observation but under conditions of second order observation as being observed by others and the point is uh, and now going back to the question of identity that we not only observe the world or others or whatever you know stuff we buy or artwork in this way right and very similar thing if you if you buy something uh, you know, you first look at the reviews, right? Or if you go to a restaurant or a hotel or a touristic destination, uh, the most important criteria that you orient yourself on the is is the second order observation. You observe how it is being observed. Hmm. This is how we, uh, Luhmann, this is what he literally says, we orient ourselves in the world in this way. Mm. This is how we how we how we shape um, how we shape notions of, of value of validity. This is our way of orientation. And uh, through second-order observation in all these different social systems. Now, the important point is because we orient ourselves in the world in this way, we also develop our own identity in this way. Mm-hmm. We need to profile, develop profiles of ourselves. We shape our identity in terms of shaping our profiles, right? I mean, the podcast you are doing and so forth is also a form of both. We are b- right now both engaging you and me in a form of, of profile uh, shape. And um, we will judge this podcast on terms of how it's being observed, right? Because mm-hmm. there will be comments and so forth. And uh, that's uh, in particular how it's being being observed by people we do not know because they count most, by a kind of an anonymous public, by the system. And um, th- th- so this is really, this. Tra- I think, this transition to profilicity, which is, I think, a core... Uh, criterion for modernity and modern society and modern existence in general. And that's really something that I think is very global now with the social media um, and and so forth. So this profilicity, uh, this notion has to be differentiated from two other notions. Um, These come from uh, Lionel Trilling, uh, who was writing in the 1970s. He wrote this book on sincerity and authenticity, which was later also discussed by Charles Taylor, the famous philosopher. So this idea is very basically, there's another form of identity, an older form of identity formation, which Trilling calls sincerity. What does this mean? Uh, We become who we are, we achieve an identity by fitting into a social role. 
and by sincerely, that's why it's called sincerity, sincerely committing to a social role. Uh, we, these roles would be typically in the family, right? And it also has to do with stratified society, or you commit to yourself a role as a monk, or, uh, you know, in the church, or as an whatever, as a knight, as an aristocrat. So you commit to a social role in the family, to a mother, motherhood, for instance, and then you become who you are by sincerely committing to a social role. And then your emotions, uh, what you think, what you think is right and wrong, is all being informed and oriented towards this social role. And then what happened is this was replaced by this notion or this ideal, uh, this self-technology of authenticity where people said, no, no, that's not really correct. Uh, we shouldn't just conform to social roles. This is just conformity. Our identity should be based on our true inner self. We have to find our original self, which is unique. We have to find what, what, what we are truly are inside. And then our outward persona, uh, how, we, how we present ourselves in society, should be a true reflection, an authentic reflection of our authentic inner self. So this is a second model of selfhood, of identity, that replaced the sincerity model, which is then no longer role oriented social sincere commitment to a social role but expression true expression of your authentic inner self and i think in in modernity in our current society under conditions of pervasive second order observation as luhmann described it we're switching to a third model this model of profilicity we are we are developing we are curating as you say in english certain profiles and we project them and if these pro profiles are validated uh, then they are footholds for our identity and that this is then how we build our our identity by by building up certain profiles and um, by having them uh, validated so um, this is i think or this is like what i find most interesting um, currently in my own work about Luhmann's theory of modernity. And I think this is what actually happened in the 21st century, that this shift towards second order observation, which was already very powerful in these different function systems, uh, economy, politics, and so forth, is now also becoming basically existentially powerful that we shape identity both individually and collectively uh, uh, according to this kind of second-order observation form of identity, which, which I call profilicity. Yeah, thank you. That's really interesting. So to build on that, could we say that the that identity is also becoming a kind of a, an assemblage of data points? Look, um, you were also mentioning earlier, like at least alluding to it, to the social credit system in China, right? Yeah. And these kind of things. And I don't know, some of your listeners or yourself might have watched this um, Black Mirror episode. Um, what is it called again? Where, where these people kind of constantly assign uh, stars to one another. I, I haven't uh, seen like, it. But... Yeah. Anyways, so uh, that becomes um, an all-pervasive function that functions somewhat differently in, in China than it functions in the West. But I think the main difference uh, between the, the Chinese social credit system and the constant ratings and rankings that we subject ourselves to, 
Mm. Uh, and indirectly, we're, as I said, we are also right now, because when you put this out on the social media, all the social media operate with these kind of uh, review bases. And, yeah, and likes, uh, shares. Exactly, likes, exactly, likes and shares and this. Uh, and the only difference basically between China and, and the West is that in the, in the West it's commodified, <laughs> that it's all private companies who do it. Mm. And whereas in China, uh, it's basically still state run. Uh, but why the one is necessarily so much better than the other, that it escapes me. Uh, and it's uh, at least as, as intensely applied in, in, in Western context, except that it's more commodified there than in China. So uh, that is like something we, we subject ourselves to very um, uh, willingly. Um, and um, yeah, uh, that 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 is that is so on on a global scale. But I'm not sure if I answered your question correctly. No, that, I think that's an answer. I'm 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 thinking of identity increasingly becoming associated with this kind of online data, or online information, rather than being vested. How could you say it? In the body well, of I mean, the, the person. The, in, in the West, in the West in particular, this is again like a very much of a generalization. And we, we have a lot of literature about it. And this is how people, including myself, then kind of intuitively think about it as a loss of authenticity, right? Um, and it's, it is, it is um, we develop a sort of uh, fear or a melancholy, uh, you know, we lose our authenticity. There was a book written by a guy called Simonowski, Roberto Simonowski, losing ourselves and sharing ourselves, Facebook society. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, but I think that is um, um, that is uh, a theoretical misinterpretation because authenticity was already been has also been problematic, right? Authenticity has always been copied. It was just a model you found in novels. Luhmann talks about this uh, later on in movies, and, and it's it's also very much like a regime of authenticity. You have to become authentic. That's very stressful, mm. and ultimately, it's impossible to be authentic. Uh, so I don't think we're, we are losing something. It's just that this the profilicity that we apply in most of what we do in society and also in shaping our identity uh, is, and this is what people realize, it, it, it's a violation of, this, of these semantics, as Luhmann would say, hmm. or the norm, the ideal of an authentic identity. The problem is, of course, we've never been authentic. Uh, but we see this this false ideal, which never described us accurately, anyways, uh, to be uh, to be threatened, uh, and this is why people feel uh, uncomfortable on the one hand about it. But the, the 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 paradox is that they actually do not feel uncomfortable completely because they're applying it all the time. Hmm. Right, as I said, like uh, we applied in in our everyday life all the time. Uh, the, it's just like a faith in a in a religion that disappears, right? It became uncomfortable, whatever, when Darwinism rose up, because it it made it made the, the old vocabulary that that we had become comfortable with, and the way in which we like to describe ourselves, uh, it made it seem very odd and no longer reliable. And I think that's 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 happening right now. That this that the whole vocabulary, the whole semantics, this whole ideal. Uh, of this authenticity and individualism is faltering. Uh, and um, that's why many people, on the one hand, feel 
that this kind of digitalized world uh, is taking something away, while at the same time um, they are they are very much applying it uh, very happily in their daily lives. Yeah, perhaps what we're seeing is you know the individual who's divided over different social systems, or as we mm. said, the radical anti anthropocentrism of Luhmann is perhaps just becoming really apparent finally to yes. the most of society. Right. Uh, I, I do think so. Uh, and uh, I think as again, uh, particularly this concept of second order observation uh, is, is very useful in, in making sense of, of contemporary society. And I think again, to go back maybe just briefly to this, if we want, for instance, want to have a, a thorough political critique, it shouldn't just be uh, on the basis of a certain moralist political correctness themes, but we should, I think, also question ourselves uh, in how far, for instance, which is not what is nowadays called often like virtue signaling and so forth, how our own way of politically articulating a certain judgments is based on our own identity uh, projections within um, a certain political discourse, right? Mm. And uh, that instead of instead of really doing politics, what we are doing is some form of just self identity uh, projection, right? And this, particularly once we see through this, maybe then we ca- can find a better way to actually do. Uh, politics that is no longer just kind of a form of of, of moral posturing or, or self exhibition in order to get likes, in order to get to gain a ki- kind of uh, political uh, validity. And I think that's uh, that's that's what happens. You see uh, you see this in, in the United States, but you also see it in in in, in Germany, in Europe. How this kind of um, moral posturing which has replaced politics and is thereby to a certain extent corrupting politics. Mm. Um, so that's, that's one, one way how, how I think you can to go to connect maybe a little bit the dots of, of the different questions, uh, um, how, how you could have some form of, of more radical politics that would, that would uncover the, that what, what we could maybe call the hollow or vain or publicity uh, desiring a posturing of, of the politics, in particular of the left, which thereby loses its actual radical or, or is no, uh, has, has not much actual radical potential because it's just mere kind of media posturing. Yeah, so thank you, Professor. As a final question to finish off with Niklas Luhmann again, do you think that his theory and his work does that leave us for for our century ahead of us does it leave us hopeful or or does it leave us in despair um i think you're alluding to a phrase that i discussed in one of the books but Lu- the phrase that luman uses certainly yes originally yeah next speed meto is an old latin saying means neither hope nor fear and uh, that already in the, in the in the classical Roman context, it was understood as, as a Stoic uh, concept, like the philosophical school of the Stoic. And I think Luhmann's theory, and, and he uses this phrase, and 
even calls himself at times something like a modern-day Stoic. And also uh, his frequent references to Spinoza, I think, have to understood in this way because Spinoza, too, is kind of in the Stoic trajectory. And this also can reconnect, by the way, with certain Taoist and Buddhist leanings, which have also certain similarities with Stoicism. And and I think the, they represent um, a certain attitude of theory um, that, that Luhmann, uh, in his works, also takes on. So on the one hand, what the no hope means, uh, it's not just like this uh, kind of um, German uh, nihilism. Uh, that's not what is meant with that. What is meant is uh, no hope in the sense of no, for instance, religious enthusiasm, no hope for an afterworld, no hope, no false ideals, no false. And, and of course, these false ideals can be very harmful. They lead to fanaticism. They re- lead to religious fanaticism, but they also lead to political fanaticism, right? Whatever, if you look at Stalinism or, or fascism, um, they, it's an exaggerated hope often tragically inspired through philosophy and social theory, social engineering, right? Hope, uh, unfettered hope, unrestrained hope uh, can be very dangerous. Uh, And uh, so in that sense, if you you attach too much hope uh, to theory, it can become both uh, socially as well as psychologically problematic. Um, and then, of course, the opposite is also the case. Um, uh, what, this brings us back to the critical attitude. We shouldn't, and we are, as theoreticians, we shouldn't be afraid to question dogmas, to question, radically question everything, basically, or anything that is suppo- not supposed, and especially that which is not supposed to be questioned. Mm. Right. So that is, I think, um, what where, where theory can be very daring and has shows no fear that it is that mode of thinking in which we can question that which is otherwise in other realms of society, not que- not allowed to question in politics. There are so many limits, things you cannot question. Right and so forth in religion, of course, even more. But the theoretical attitude is fearless in the sense that it dares to question specifically that which goes unquestioned in other social modes. Mm. No hope, but also no fear. Uh, that's where theory, philosophy finds its home. Yeah, thank you very much, Professor. I think that's a very good note to end on. And uh, once again, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Okay, thank you very much for giving me that uh, opportunity again.